Good afternoon. Thank you so much for being with us on this Monday, September 19th. A busy show, but we are starting off talking about what happened at the PNE when a concert did not go ahead as planned with the headliner last night. And then we waited over an hour for him to show up, but he never showed up. And then every, like they said that he was too sick, but he was backstage, and everyone got really upset because he was the headline, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And everyone got really mad. They started yelling, like, F breakout and F little baby. And so they said it was canceled. And everyone started leaving. But some people stayed back, obviously. And they started rioting and breaking all the tents and everything. Yeah. That uh, was just two of the concert goers. They left, as you heard there, when the announcement was made that the headliner would not be going on stage. An update earlier today from Vancouver Police saying that they made multiple arrests and have also launched a criminal investigation into the violence that erupted at that concert at the PNE Amphitheater, saying that fights broke out. There was significant property damage during what is being described as concert goers becoming hostile following that announcement. Well, joining us to talk a bit more about this is Jim Sesford, a retired Delta police chief. Thank you so much for taking some time with us today. Hi, Jill. Thanks. It's uh, it's good to be with you. Uh, Lovely to talk to you again. Uh, Unfortunately, we're talking about uh, something, as I just mentioned, that caused a lot of damage. Uh, Police saying uh, that they made multiple arrests uh, after that uh, rioting took place. Uh, From a policing point of view, when you see that, what goes through your mind? Well, first off, it's really unfortunate that that type of disorder uh, does erupt. And, uh, you know, and and people get involved with that kind of behavior. It's it's actually quite ridiculous. But um, I I, I have personally been involved with several situations or incidents of of that type. And and it, um, you know, it's... uh, it's very disconcerting from a police officer's point of view because you're sitting there and you're watching this stuff go on. And and quite frankly, all you can do is kind of contain and and uh, uh, control from the outside what's happening. Uh, very dangerous for the police to get involved in the middle of something like that. But, um, but I, you know, I, I thought the Vancouver police did an excellent job of it, quite frankly, and their response was quick. And uh, they they contained it, uh, contained the incident for the most part. And as an officer, like you say, you don't quite know what you're going into and what's happening. Uh, We know now in the update today talked about the fact that uh, several hundred people, according to Vancouver police, started fighting. They were destroying property. Uh, They were doing things like tipping over vendor, the food vendor kiosks and damaging tables, refrigerators, tents. So as an officer going into that, when you don't know what's happening, all you know is you're being called to what's being described as a riot. What do you do differently going into that scenario? Well, you've got to really be uh, alert to what's going on around you. Uh, you know, there there were there were bottles being thrown or objects being thrown, and from a, from the police officer's perspective, <clears throat> you've got to really be aware of your surroundings, and you've got to also maintain uh, close distance with your with your fellow officers. One of the most dangerous things that can happen to a police officer in that situation is to get isolated away from the other officers. That, that's a very dangerous situation. And so you want to make sure that you're in close proximity to each other uh, and that you're very aware of what's going on in your, around the Jew. So, um, yeah, it, it's, uh, it, it's, it's, it is really quite disconcerting when that, when that type of stuff breaks out because you don't know what's going to happen next. And uh, you just have to be very aware. 
And what are the dangers as well when we're talking about, I mean, it's one thing to be called to a street fight or a fight between a couple of people or to be called to a disturbance where maybe one person or two people are are doing something. But what makes it different or how is it different when we're dealing with something like this that really is a mob mentality? Well, there's that. And people seem to totally lose control of their of themselves and and they start you know that is the anger and, and the, the incident gains momentum and that's and that's um uh, you know that's not a good situation because people seem to to kind of thrive on what the others are doing and it just the whole situation then evolves and they lose control what's what's difficult here is the crowd uh badly outnumbers the police uh, you know, there were obviously thousands of people there. They outnumber the police um, uh, by a large by a large amount. And so from the police, they, they can't become the target here. They can't get into the middle. All they can do is stay in the perimeter and uh, maintain control from the other perimeter. Right. And do you think we've kind of learned that in the past or when we look at, unfortunately, other events like this? I can't believe it was this long ago, but looking at the, the guns and riot. Guns and Roses, the riot that broke out there back in all the way back in 2002. Uh, but video came to light after that of people who, I mean, there were thousands of people there uh, of some cases where po- perhaps police uh, took out people that weren't actually doing anything. They just happened to be caught up in, in the rioting and they were there and that there, there was some concern or some criticism in some cases of the police response being a bit heavy handed. Well, I think that if you're if you're having to remove people, you know, like in, in this most recent in this incident last night, there were arrests being made, and what you want to do is try to identify the troublemakers or the the leaders of a group, if if you will, and try to get them away from the crowd, and and to isolate them, and you know sometimes it, it, it it's it's complete chaos, you know. I guess obviously sometimes you make. You make a mistake in arresting the wrong person. But I think for the most part, the police have a good sense for who the troublemakers are, who the leaders are, and we want to remove those people from the scene. And oftentimes in doing that, there is a very violent confrontation that occurs. And, you know, oftentimes, um, Joe, what happens is that when we see on video and that, we only get the second part of what's happening with the, with the interaction. We oftentimes don't see what started or, well, you know, what started the event. So, um, you know, it, it's, it's going to be rough. Uh, it's, it's a very chaotic situation. There's chaos, and people uh, and the police have to react as best they can to deal with it. Sometimes that involves using force. And police have now said that in addition to the seven people that were arrested yesterday uh, in the the height of this while this was taking place, they've now said they've also launched a criminal investigation. How much do you think does social media play into this and that there are a ton of people that are sharing video that have video of what happened? Uh, We certainly saw that in the Stanley Cup riot as well. How much does that play into an investigation? Well, that, that'll be a huge part of the investigation. And uh, you know, social media uh, can sometimes be a detriment, but sometimes it can certainly be an asset. And in this type of an investigation, the various uh, uh, video uh, that the, the police can pick up would be just total, uh, really a, 
a, uh, an asset to their investigation for sure. And uh, and I'm sure that they'll be looking and the police will be looking at, at the social media and trying to identify the main uh, troublemakers of their leaders of, of this uh, of this riot that occurred. So, uh, yeah, it'll be a, it'll be a big part of the investigation without question. And you mentioned this too, that mentioned that you thought police did a good job in diffusing this or in responding quickly. And I suppose one of the the positive things from this, even though the the fact that this happened at all is not good, but positive that at this point anyway, uh, there were no major injuries reported. Yes, and and you know, thankfully there were no major injuries uh, recorded. It, it appears that some people were taken to hospital, but nothing major. And, uh, and, and, you know, if there's anything positive that come out of the situation, it would be that. But, but really, those people who were involved in that situation, they're lucky that there were no major incidents that occurred. Because uh, some of these people, when you're looking at a criminal investigation, if there were serious injuries that occurred, there could be some people involved with that that, be, that could face some serious criminal charges. Uh, if in fact there had been serious injuries that had occurred, so um, yeah, and it uh, they were lucky. Although there was an awful lot of damage that was uh, that was caused by these people, in uh, you know, I mean that's that's quite frankly that's disgusting that people behave in that fashion. And my hope for this would be that if in fact uh, these people are, are taken to court if they're convicted, I'm hoping that restitution uh, will occur and that they're that they're uh, assess heavy heavy uh, charges for restitution for the damage that was caused. Yeah, and, and like you said, it was, uh, well, police have said to thousands of dollars at least uh, in property damage. Uh, so uh, certainly the, the investigation is continuing. Uh, Jim Sesford, we'll leave it there for today, but thank you so much for your time. Thanks very much, Joe. We'll talk again. Well, as you know, the world said goodbye to Queen Elizabeth II today during that state funeral held for the 96-year-old. It drew leaders of several countries and people from around the globe made the trip, if they could, to London to be there for the funeral. As you know, Elizabeth, who was on the throne for seven decades, passed away on September 8th in her Scottish residence alongside members of her family, all who had been summoned there, called to be with the Queen. This was the United Kingdom's first state funeral since Winston Churchill's state funeral in 1965. And of course, if you've been watching along and listening along, you will know that it was filled with spectacle. So many amazing scenes unfolding as the world said goodbye. Well, a local royal commentator traveled to London, uh, not only for the funeral today, but also for the Platinum Jubilee earlier this year uh, for royal weddings in the past. And Edward Wang joins me now to talk a little bit more about why he felt it important to be in London for this and what it was like as things were unfolding in front of him. Uh, Edward, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. First of all, I, I understand you stayed up all night to, to get a good spot to be able to see what was happening today. Maybe tell us what that was like. Well, it was very, uh, 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 there was a lot of emotion to it. For someone who cares so much about the monarchy, I knew I had to be in London to be able to pay my final respects to such a great sovereign. Um, I got to my spot uh, outside of Whitehall, uh, right by Downing Street at about 2 a.m. this morning. And 
uh, spots were already filled up with lots of tents and people sleeping over. And uh, I was worried that I had missed my opportunity, but I was able to meet up with some uh, new strangers and they were kind enough to invite me to join them. And I found a, a very good spot and I was able to be at the very front uh, right by the barriers uh, when the procession came along. But at the very beginning when I arrived there, I think there was still some mood of celebration and happiness in the air in that people were celebrating uh, the life of such a excellent queen. There were flags and around, and it almost reminded me of being in London for the Jubilee or for a royal wedding. But as the time approached the, the commencement of the funeral, I think people got a, a lot more somber and we were able to talk about our feelings and, and talk about why the Queen was so important for us. Uh, and as the ceremonies began, uh, you know, you can hear a pin drop, uh, especially at the two minute, uh, uh, the two minutes of silence towards the end of the funeral. Uh, all we can hear were the birds chirping in the air. Uh, and I got quite emotional as uh, the crowds join in to sing God Save the King. Uh, and as the Queen's uh, coffin uh, was carried by where I was by, uh, on the gun carriage, I had an opportunity to bow one last time to Her Late Majesty. And that just meant so much to me. It must have been, too, uh, like you said, kind of that feeling of of camaraderie and people uh, made friendships while waiting, not only while waiting for the funeral, but also uh, when people were waiting those long hours to pay their last respects to, to the Queen when she was uh, lying in state. But it must have changed so much, or do you remember kind of the feeling you had when, when the procession started going by and you realized this was happening, that the funeral was, in fact, underway? I think people got a lot of people got emotional as that started. Uh, and in the beginning of the night, people were laughing, sharing stories, making jokes, and really getting to know one another. And this was true for both the 13-hour-long uh, queue for myself for lying in state, as well as the evening before uh, the funeral. But uh, you know, as the actual ceremonies began, or with respect to the lying in state, as we were entering Westminster Hall. Uh, things got quite emotional and everyone was feeling quite raw at that time. But when uh, both events finished, I think, you know, everyone was glad that they did it. I certainly hugged the people around me and, and I was really appreciative of having the opportunity to get to know new friends uh, through our shared respect for Her Majesty the Queen. And you said, so sorry, you, you waited about 13 hours, did you, to, to, pay, your, to pay your respects? For the Lion's Day, yes, uh, just under 13 hours. I, I got to London uh, on Friday afternoon. In fact, when I before I landed, uh, I saw the notice that the queue was temporarily being stopped. And I was getting quite concerned because I hadn't even landed in London yet. Uh, but once I got checked into my hotel, the queue was reopened and I rushed to the end of the queue at Southwark Park. I got in line at 7.22 p.m. and I finished uh, and I left Mr. Hall just shortly after 8 a.m. Wow. And are you happy that you did that and glad that you put in that time to do that? I, I, I certainly am. And I think, you know, the Queen, uh, a lot of people were saying the same things when they were asked, like, are you OK waiting this long in line? It's quite cold. And, and a lot of the responses were, if Her Majesty can do 70 years for us, then we can do 10, 12, 13 hours for her. And it meant so much to be able to pay my final respect to someone who was such a great sovereign and for someone who inspired me and my activities in the community and someone who I, look up, uh, I looked up to significantly.
And did you get that sense then from others also, uh, not only the people that you met in that lineup, but that we saw, and again, we saw those uh, the pictures of those lineups, but also, like you said, when you arrived at about two in the morning to get a good spot and to be able to be there for the funeral? Uh, definitely. I think people were not, like, uh, this was a situation where everyone knew that people were going to be emotional and people wanted to pay their final respects to the Queen. So there was no jostling for spaces. There were no people trying to, uh, you know, steal a space if someone went to the washroom or something. Everyone was holding spots for other people uh, and would check in and ask, like, hey, I'm going to go grab a coffee now. Would you like one as well? And what really uh, really, um, touched me was to see in the queue for the Lying in State represented people from all aspects of society. You look at, uh, you know, uh, ethnic backgrounds, you look at ages, and, uh, you know, the entire society is represented and uh, was represented. And you would ask them where they were from, and you had people like myself coming from Vancouver, Canada, but also other people flying from Scotland, coming from all four corners of the United Kingdom. Uh, there were a number of Canadians, and I think it was aired in the news that uh, Jason Kenney, the Premier of Alberta, also joined the queue on his own because as a Premier, he wasn't invited to the, the official events, but he wanted to also be in London uh, to pay respects to the Queen. And, and that was something that really touched me because it showed the influence and the reach that this excellent Queen had for all aspects of society. Right. And, and Edward, it might be maybe too soon to talk at length about this, but I know people are wondering and talking about kind of what happens next and getting this day, which is such a momentous day, and whether people got up really early to watch the funeral on television or listen to it on the radio, or like you made the trip to London to, to be there because it was so important. What do you think then moving forward will remember this queen, but does it change, do you think, uh, how people are going to relate to the monarchy and and to the new king. I think this is the excellent aspect of monarchy in that there's continuity. Yes, <clears throat> we have lost an excellent queen who has served us for over 70 years, but as the funeral procession marched on, just a few steps behind was the next king, and then with him are the next generation as well, the Prince of Wales, and after that in the car are the Prince of Wales's children, Prince George and Princess Charlotte. So you can see that this continuity will go on for generations. And let's be frank, we know that the king is not as popular as his mother, and we know that the king is not as popular as his son. But this is not someone who lived in the bubble for the last 70 years. He has learned so much from his mother, and he will really take on his duties seriously and live up to the legacy that his mother has left. I think a lot of people will be pleasantly surprised on how great a king he will be, this king has already shown that he's very interested in so many important issues, such as climate change and, and sustainability, but also on issues of, of relating to peoples. Uh, reconciliation, whether in the Canadian context between Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples, or in the Irish context between Unionists and Nationalists, these issues matter so much to the King, as evidenced by some of the discussions he's had with, for example, the Governor General, as well as Prime Minister, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, with respect to the Canadian issues. Right. All right. Uh, Edward, just before I let you go, what what is next for you? As you mentioned, you've had uh, some very busy days, not a whole lot of sleep as you've been attending what's happening in London. Uh, what do you see as far as uh, people like yourself and you who are in London? Kind of how do you uh, kind of 
put this behind you and move on to the next thing? Mm-hmm. Well, I fly back to Vancouver on Wednesday afternoon. Before I do that, I do want to go to uh, Green Park to see some of the floral arrangements and the floral tribute that's been left for the late Queen. Um, but going forward, you know, uh, this is not my day job. I, I'm a practicing lawyer, but uh, as as someone who's been so following the royal family and, and learning about the royal family, I'm so excited to see what the king does. And I will continue to comment about their activities because, you know, uh, the the monarchy is here to stay, especially in a country like Canada, where our constitution is so difficult to change. And I'm looking forward to the reactions that people will have when they are pleasantly surprised at how excellent the King Charles III will be. All right. Edward, thank you so much. I know it's been a very busy day for you, but thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. You're welcome, and thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much for being with us on this Monday afternoon. Coming up a little bit later this half hour, we are going to check in with Ben O'Hara Byrne one more time from London as he was there today for Queen Elizabeth II's funeral. We'll find out how things unfolded, where he was, and what's happening there now. First, though, we are taking a look at the toxic drug crisis in this province. The coroner's report, the latest one, came out this week, revealing there are more and more people dying of drug overdoses. And we've heard recently as well from NDP leadership hopeful David Eby that he is interested in looking into forced treatment if he becomes leader, if he becomes premier. Recently, though, there has been some research showing that forced treatment can actually increase the possibility of death. And CKNW contributor Eric Chapman has more on that. The numbers are out again. And the poison drug crisis is not slowing. The giant is only gaining momentum and the front line is bracing for more casualties. When BC's chief coroner Lisa Lapointe back in August gave the update about the toxic drug crisis in BC, things did not look good and they were not getting better. To date, in 2022, British Columbia has lost 1,095 people to toxic drugs. Though we've not finalized the total number of lives lost in July 22 and so are not presenting those uh, numbers today, we know we have seen significant numbers of deaths in July and expect the final monthly total to be high. And I can confirm as well that in July our province reached the terrible milestone of 10,000 deaths in British Columbia since the toxic public health uh, toxic drug public health emergency was declared in April 2016. And the chief coroner was right. The numbers are out and it's hard to read. 192 more people died in July from poison drugs. During this battle, there have been many ideas tossed around about how to help, from safe supply to things like forced treatment. Front runner for the leader of the BC NDP party, David Eby, once again brought up that he will have the forced treatment conversation. People who have multiple overdoses should be put in treatment, even if it means they have to be forced to do it. EB made the comments on the campaign trail to Post Media. Meanwhile, in Sweden, a study has come out in the Drug and Alcohol Dependence Journal that says, increased risk of death immediately after discharge from compulsory care for substance abuse rises dramatically. UCLA Dr. Joseph Friedman, who studies social medicine, talked to me, and I asked why he called forced treatment incarceration. It's important to understand that when it comes to substance use, 
when it comes to drug policy, the devil's in the details, right? The details matter a great deal. So some forms of, you know, compulsory treatment may not involve people being forced into facilities, you know, but I think in the case of the study, we are largely talking about people who um, were kind of uh, mandated into treatment. In many cases, that includes uh, some kind of inpatient setting, right? And so I think in general, if we're thinking about the spectrum of what treatment might look like, in many cases, uh, forced or compulsory treatment is actually very similar to incarceration, right? People's rights, people's liberties are being taken away. So being incarcerated without any type of due process is a questionable move, is it not? Substance use disorder is, um, can be a very tricky illness to treat. And you know, it, it can be very tempting from the outside to think that we know what's best, right, and, and kind of offer help to folks in the way that we think is best. And certainly we need to be offering help. But, you know, all of the data that's available have really shown us that forcing people into treatment, you know, forcing people to seek treatment for their addiction against their will is unfortunately just very unlikely to work. It's just associated with poor outcomes. And so while I think absolutely we need to be deeply investing in additional capacity for for drug treatment, forcing people into it is just unlikely to work, right? We've seen that um, abstinence rates are not great. They're kind of poor when people are forced into treatment. And as we see in the study that we're talking about now, overdose risk is actually pretty acute, right? So after forced treatment, you know, it can be a traumatizing experience. In many cases, you're not even doing a good job of kind of treating the underlying emotional and behavioral patterns that are leading to substance use. And so people get out. And unfortunately, there's a very high risk of overdose following forced treatment. Forced treatment has been brought up by people like David Eby to address the ongoing crime in the downtown area. You know, and I think it's important that we conceptually separate substance use from other kinds of issues. So if someone is uh, committing, you know, violent crimes, or if somebody is, you know, committing other kinds of property crimes, that is against the law, right? And that will kind of result in somebody going into the criminal justice system. And I think that, you know, and if somebody, similarly, if somebody is psychotic and they are a danger to themselves or a danger to others, in most countries, those people are uh, for a short time, you know, they will be held in the hospital and they will receive mental health treatment. So I think those are separate issues from the question of if somebody is just using substances, right, and that is kind of their decision to use these substances, does that in and of itself warrant removing their right to liberty and forcing them into drug treatment? And I think, you know, regardless of the philosophical implications, the, the kind of empirical question of does forcing someone like that into drug treatment have good outcomes? And I think the answer is it doesn't. Yes, the study was done in Sweden, which means the results here would be dramatically different. It's a country that does have a comprehensive welfare system that really takes care of people in a way that we, unfortunately, in Canada and in the United States are not able to do with the resources that our politicians have devoted to social issues. So it's just important to keep in mind that you know, even though the researchers here in Sweden did measure this big increase in mortality following forced medical treatment, uh, forced substance use treatment, actually the effect of, of this, of a similar thing would probably be much higher in the United States. So just to reiterate that, 
know, in the United States or in Canada, I actually think forced treatment would likely lead to higher rates of mortality because we don't have many of the services that people in a country like Sweden do enjoy. Something like forced treatment, removing the rights of a group of people and um, forcing them into a model of, um, you know, kind of social response to the problem of addiction that is not backed by evidence, you know that that is going to be disproportionately enacted on people of color and the most vulnerable people in society. So I really think it's important that we keep kind of equity issues in mind when we think about these policies. It's hard to ignore the evidence that forced treatment is not an effective tool in the fight to stop the death. It only adds to the body count. With six people dying a day, perhaps the trauma, poverty, and social problems that help create addiction issues could be the next thing hopeful leaders can take a look at. And that was CKNW contributor Eric Chapman. Well, it is time for us to check in one more time with Ben O'Hara Byrne, host of A Little More Conversation right here on CKNW. And Ben has been in London, and that is where we find him again today. Thank you so much for taking some time once again. Yeah, thanks, Jill. Thanks for having me. Uh, We were talking to somebody earlier, a local royal commentator, who not only waited the 13 hours when uh, Queen Elizabeth was lying in state, but also got up very early today to get a a good spot to see the funeral procession. Uh, What was today like for you? It was, I mean, it was very somber. I mean, I think we had talked before about how the mood had been fairly, I wouldn't call it jovial, but there had been a celebration of the Queen and a lot of people talking about sharing stories and there was a lot of camaraderie in the line and so forth. Today Today felt somber. So even when I got, I was there very early before dawn walking through um, Green Park and walking through St. James's Park right around Buckingham Palace towards Westminster Abbey where we were set up for today. And it, you just felt the change. You felt the shift. Um, you know, today was going to be about saying goodbye. Today was, there was a finality to it, even though there was so much to watch. And, it was, and in so many ways, it was, it was quite, people were awestruck by what they saw, the precision of it. You know the the the, circ- the pomp and circumstance of it, even though it was a it was funereal, um, but you felt that you felt you felt the weight of it today. I found, um, unlike days before, and there was a finality to it today. And I think everyone understood that as well. So there was a, there was a different atmosphere today. It wasn't it wasn't bad. It was just much more somber than it had been. I think everyone felt that the goodbyes had been said, and today was the day really um, to support the family. There was a lot of good energy, a lot of Love in that crowd. One of the people marching in the procession told me they could feel it. Um, but, you know, it was a difficult day for the family. Clearly, they were very somber. And, uh, and I think a lot of people who came to watch also felt the weight of that uh, today as they watched from all kinds of vantage points. But it was very busy. But it was, it was quiet. It was quiet today compared to days past. And at this point, with the the time difference, I know it's late into the evening there. Uh, have the public funeral events or the, the the chances for the public to come out and pay their respects and say goodbye, have those come to a close? Those came to a close in Windsor. Yeah, the last events for this evening, uh, people lined the, uh, lined the streets of Windsor to welcome uh, the hearse with the coffin, as well as when it, as the family when they left us in the, the committal service at St. George's uh, this evening. Uh, but an hour and a half ago, there was a... Uh, a private family service, burial service, uh, which was not covered, was not in the media. It was the first time that they had been been able to have something this private 
in, in a long time. So I'm sure they were happy to be out of the spotlight to be able to grieve on their own. You know, I was walking around Green Park on my way back tonight, and, you know, there were still people leaving flowers and still people doing that. So the public displays of the condolence continue, but the public events are done. And I know, Ben, we talked about this last week or or talked about the involvement of the RCMP and so many Canadians that travelled to London to be part of this. And I I imagine that was also um, very much, you would have noticed that today as far as the procession and Canada's involvement. Yeah, absolutely. It was was great to see. I mean, it was interesting to see how much Canadian representation there was. I mean, seeing that procession come up the mall towards Buckingham Palace, and there's that incredible image where all the staff from Buckingham Palace came and stood along as the coffin went by. And in front of that pack was was the RCMP in their red surge, and it was it was it was a it was quite a moment to behold because there were so many things today that were so um, that left people so awestruck, and, and for Canada to have that kind of role at the forefront of it was a was a tremendous was a tremendous honor. We spoke obviously to those who were going to be in the um to be in it. We were going to talk to them again. They ended up in they got stuck in Windsor to give you an idea of how difficult it was to get around London they, they couldn't make it to Canada House uh, at Trafalgar Square. But you know, they they knew how much was riding on this um for them. And I, you know, watching it it was it was just uh it was fitting in some ways that this this you know, she she'd always had this the Queen had always had this fascination with the R C P and the horses and the surge and so on. And there they were at the front. And it was, uh, you know, with all the military regiments that she was affiliated with in Canada behind her, behind them as well, uh, marching. So it was, it was a day that, uh, that really did reflect uh, the Queen's affection for Canada uh, and, you know, and, and the Canadian military and, and the RCMP. And it was, it was fitting that they were all there to mark this, this day, this historical day. And it looked like everything kind of went ahead as planned without any big glitches. But I imagine, too, the, the security and the crowd control must have just been uh, just an amazing amount of that. Yeah, you had to have, you had to have patience if you, if you were going to be down there, because as, as crowds were trying to make their way around, you know, cr- roads were being closed off, people were being told to go other ways, people were getting stuck. But, you know, it's, it, I found it remarkable just how precise everything was. I mean, at one point, you know, they were saying, you know, they're going to show up at this time. Everyone arrived on time. Everyone was in the Abbey. Uh, they said it would take 12, you know, 11 minutes for the, for the coffin to be brought from Westminster Hall to, that, to Westminster Abbey. That's how long it took. I mean, there was a military precision to today and the timing that was quite astounding. And, and as far as I could tell, Nothing went right. It went off with almost without a hitch. There was a few people that fainted, and a soldier that fainted, and that police officer that fainted. There was one person, I think, who was arrested for trying to jump the barrier as the coffin was approaching. But other than that, it was considering how many people were down there, the scale of who was in that abbey, uh, and just the enormity of, of the security challenge that they were faced with. I know they've been planning for a long time. They've been a long time to execute. It was remarkable just how um, flawless it appeared to be today. It felt flawless. Um, the only people who would have told you perhaps otherwise were those who found themselves walking many, many kilometers in circles trying to find a spot to stop and being put in one way and the other, one direction and the other. But that's what happens when they start to close down all those roads. It was very hard to get into that area of the city today. All right. Well, Ben, thank you so much for visually painting us uh, those pictures and bringing us the very latest uh, from London. I so appreciate that you've been available. It's been great chatting with you about this. Well, thanks for having me on the show, Jill. I appreciate it.